A reading from 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Herob, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshai over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Paul Joslin, and I'm the student pastor here at Waterstone Community Church, and I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. Um, I'd like to start by saying congratulations. You made it to 2017. Yeah, yeah, we can, that deserves a woo. Um, apparently, from what I've been seeing on my social media feed, that's quite an accomplishment uh, coming through 2016. Um, and I don't know about you guys, there's probably a lot that stands out about this last year. As I was reflecting on the year 2016, there's several things that came to mind. Um, and I wonder if you remember some of them. One, uh, I remember the Olympics this last summer. It was pretty awesome games. I remember Simone Biles and the, the heroic stuff she did at gymnastics. Um, but then I also remember uh, the Zika virus. Um, and kind of the scare that that was. Uh, or maybe for you, the thing that stands out most about 2016 is the fact that the Broncos won the Super Bowl, which it, I had to take a moment to, to remember that it was this year because this past season has felt so long. Um, but it was, they won in 2016, so that's awesome. Um, or maybe you're a Cubs fan and it was just exciting to see the Cubs win the World Series for the first time in over 100 years. Um, or maybe... It was the contentious presidential election and the kind of cloud that that put over the year for you, depending on what your expectations were. But needless to say, 2016 was an interesting year, was it not? 
really interesting year. Um, and as I was preparing this message today, uh, I was seeing all these things pop up on social media where people would share um, their feelings about 2016 coming to a close. And I, I found a few of them pretty entertaining. And so I wanted to share a few of them with you today. And so um, the first one is uh, this person on Instagram. Um, they said, me on December 31st, 2015. Man, 2016 is so gonna be my year. And it says narrator. And I like to think of this as like a Morgan Freeman voice, but I can't do that. So you guys can do that in your head. 2016 would not, in fact, be anyone's year. Anybody resonate with that? Feel that? Um, a few others that I saw, there was this trend of me at the beginning of 2016 versus me at the end of 2016. And so we have Kate Winslet at the beginning of the movie Titanic versus the end. And 2016 has been so long. It's been 84 years. And anytime you have Kate, you obviously have to have Leo as well. Um, so him at the beginning of 2016 versus the end. Um, we even have... Uh, Charlie Brown, since it's the holiday season. I mean, look at how determined he looks as he's throwing the pitch right up until the point where his socks are knocked off. And some of us may feel like 2016, that was our experience. Um, and for good measure, we've got to have some Star Wars in there, Luke Skywalker. Um, there's a lot of different reactions to what is 2016 has been. Um, one that I found particularly funny was this one of Frodo, um, where he just says, it's over. It's finally over. He's so glad that it's done. Um, and then another one, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but it seemed like throughout the year, there was a lot of different ways you could get in trouble for saying things. And I particularly resonated with this, trying not to offend someone in 2016. So regardless of, of what maybe stands out to you about this year, maybe it was a good year, maybe it was a bad year, but what I found interesting is that this year is coming to a close. Everybody seems to be excited for 2017 and the hope that it may bring. But what is interesting to me is that this, this tweet that I found from a guy named Ben, 2013, it'll all be better in 2014. 2014, it'll all be better in 2015. 2015, it'll all be better in 2016. And 2016, it'll all be better in 2017. And I liked this tweet because it seems like it's, it's pretty on point, is it not? With, a, with the way that we tend to look at the last year and have disdain for the events and the things that happen and hope that the next year will bring more goodness, more joy, more peace, more of the things that we're looking for. But when you stop and think about the hope that we have around this time of year, at a new year, the reality is that our hope for a new year, it, it, it's not based in reality at all. And in all likelihood, I, I don't wanna burst your bubble, but, but 2017 will largely resemble some of the same things that we saw in 2016. There's gonna be moments where you're excited about what's going on in your life. There's gonna be good moments and there's gonna be bad moments. There's gonna be days when you're excited about the things that are going on in your life and, and, and you're gonna be filled with intense joy. But there may be moments and days when you have intense grief. And maybe there's gonna be days where you're so thankful that you're alive and you get to participate in life and, and your friends and the things that God is doing. And there may be days when you wish that you weren't alive and you feel like you can't see what God is doing in the midst of your life and your circumstances feel like they're overwhelming. And I think the reality is that as we look and we think on these different aspects of our years, the highs and the lows, how we remember the years of our lives largely depends on whether or not our expectations were met in those years. And our expectations can be really funny things, can't they? I mean, they impact how we see ourselves, how we see others, and even at times how we see God. Our, our expectations for the way that the world works and, and, and the way that sometimes it doesn't work the way we want it to can impact greatly how we see ourselves, how we see others, and how we see God. And, and today I wanna take some time to look through a story of a man named Elijah and I think at the heart of Elijah's story is his frustration with the way life has turned out differently than he expected. And his wrestling with, with what God is doing in the midst of his unmet expectations. 
And so I wanna take a moment to, to step back, give you some background to the story that Brennan just read. And then I wanna walk through that again with you. And then I wanna pull out two things that I think this story shows us about who God is and about our expectations and how we interact with him. And so if you will, uh, pray with me and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that uh, this morning that even though I'm an imperfect servant, God, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to what is found in your scriptures. I pray, Father, that as we look at the story of Elijah and in the way that he interacts with you, that, that we would see some of ourselves and some of the things that we need to change and some of the things that we need to be convicted about. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we enter in this new year. Thank you for the chance that we have to bring in this new year by worshiping you and opening your word together. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So just to give you a little background, the, the setting for our story of Elijah is a few generations after King David and Solomon. Um, and there's a new king that has just come to power and his name is King Ahab. And what we know about Ahab, what scripture tells us is that Ahab is the worst king that Israel has had up until this point. In fact, it says that he's done more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any other king up until that point. So it's kind of a dark time in Israel's history. But to make matters worse, Ahab has a wife named Jezebel. And she also is a real charmer. Jezebel, when she comes to power, she begins swaying the people of Israel to worship her God, Baal, instead of Yahweh. And she does this by when she comes to power, she actually does a purge throughout the entire land of Israel. And she gets any prophets of God that she can get her hands on and she puts them to death. And she tries to make sure that anybody who worships Yahweh is put to death or put in fear of her and her God. And so in this, this climate with, with Ahab and Jezebel and the injustice of their rule and the idolatry of their rule, Elijah steps onto the scene, God's prophet. And Elijah is often associated with incredible miracles, incredible things, signs and wonders that God has done in his life to sustain him, to help him preach what he wants the people of Israel to know. And so he's this mighty prophet that we see come onto the scene and God sends Elijah to confront Ahab about the injustice and the idolatry going on in Israel. And so Elijah, he steps forward and he comes and he meets with Ahab. Um, oh, and one other thing that you need to know is there's been a three-year famine on the land, a three-year drought that God has sent due to, to Jezebel's and Ahab's rebellion against God and their idolatry and their injustice. And so in the midst of that, God sends Ahab to confront them and, and he goes and he calls Ahab and all of the prophets of Baal to meet him on a mountain called Carmel. And when he gets to Carmel, he brings all of Israel with him and he says, okay, this is what's going on. You guys are worshiping Baal and you're trying to worship Yahweh too. You have to decide. You can't have both. And so he sets up this massive like Super Bowl-esque type duel between Baal and Yahweh. And he says, what we're gonna do is all the prophets of Baal, they're gonna set up an altar and they're gonna set up a sacrifice and then they're gonna call to their God to send fire from heaven. And then I'll do the same. And whichever God answers us, that is the God that we'll worship. And so Elijah, being the gentleman that he is, he allows the prophets of Baal to go first. And so early in the morning, they prepare their sacrifice, they get everything ready, and then they start praying out to Baal and asking him to send fire. But the author of the story tells us that there's no response, no reply, no answer. And I kind of like this about Elijah because when this is going on and there's no response and they've been praying from the morning until the middle of the afternoon, he begins to taunt them. He's kind of a trash talker. He's got this brash confidence about himself. And so he starts saying things like, maybe you just need to, to yell a little bit louder. You know what, maybe, maybe you're God, maybe he's asleep. You know, he could just be taking a nap and he can't hear your prayers. Maybe he's just kind of deep in thought and, and you just need to kind of bring him back to you. And, and some scholars say that Elijah even goes so far as to say, you know what, I think he might be taking a bathroom break. And, and I think you just need to get him back from, from the bathroom and, and then he'll answer your prayers. And this sends the prophets into a frenzy 
and they begin getting desperate. And so they begin worshiping louder and, and crazier and they begin actually slashing themselves with knives and spears, trying to, to bleed, to, to get Baal to listen to them and hear their cries. But the author again tells us that there's no response, no answer, no reply. And after this has been going on from morning until early evening, Elijah steps forward and he says, okay, you guys look exhausted. You should take a break. Why don't you let me try? And so he prepares the sacrifice and he builds back the altar of the Lord that's been torn down because they've stopped worshiping Yahweh and they've been worshiping Baal. He builds back that altar. He sacrifices the bull places on it. But then again, I love his, his confidence in this moment because he, he wants to make things more interesting. And so he tells the people of Israel to take cisterns of water, big jars of water and dump them over the sacrifice and cover it in water. And not only that, he's like, you know what? Why don't we do it a second time just to see what happens, just to see what God can do. And so they do it and they cover it in water again. And then a third time he tells them to do it until the altar and the sacrifice is completely drenched, completely covered in water. Even the trench that's around the sacrifice is covered in water. And then he prays this prayer. God, let it be known today that you are God and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again to you. And when he prays this prayer, fire falls from heaven and it consumes the sacrifice, it consumes the altar, it consumes the water. It, the fire is so intense, it burns everything up. Now, now, I want to pause here for just a moment because um, I love to go camping. And when I go camping with my wife, she gets really annoyed at me because she claims that I'm a pyromaniac. And I don't see it. I just really like to play with fire. And so um, maybe that's that. I don't know. But so what I do is I often like take all of our hot dog pokers and I poke with the fire and I'm constantly like building it up, seeing how I can build it better. And, and I'm constantly poking at the fire, playing with the logs. And all of our hot dog pokers are like all bent and warped now because they've been in the fire too long and I use them for what they're not supposed to do. But, but I love fire. I love the intensity. I love the heat. And, and just so you guys don't miss it, if you've heard this story before, God sends fire from the sky. A, a massive fireball comes from the sky and consumes this altar, consumes the stone, the wood, the sacrifice, and the water. Think about the intensity of that moment. These people have been praying all day for fire to come from sky. And Elijah says in a moment, and it happens about the fear and the intensity of that display of God's power. And at that display of God's power, all of Israel falls on the ground and they begin saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And God is turning the hearts of his people back to himself through this amazing display of his power and his might. And not only that, but then Elijah seizes the prophets who outnumber him 450 to one. And the people of Israel take them and they put them to the sword for their cruelty and their injustice that they've had under the reign of Jezebel. And in that moment of complete victory, God goes one step further and he sends rain to end the drought over the land. And it looks like everything is coming up roses for Elijah. Everything is turning out just as he had hoped and he had expected. And so as we pick up the story that Brennan just read, Elijah has just come from that mountain. He's running back to the palace ahead of King Ahab. And as he's running, I wonder if his expectations and the hopes that he had in that moment aren't unlike our own as we enter this new year. We're hopeful that something is turning, that something is changing, that we're coming back to the way that we think things ought to be, that there's hope for what is coming next. Elijah has that hope as he runs back. But unfortunately, his hopes and expectations couldn't be further from the reality of when he gets back. Because when he gets back, Ahab comes in to his wife and he says, hey, guess what happened to me today? And she's probably like, well, what? And he said, well, um, you know all your prophets? Uh, they just got killed and God sent fire down from heaven. <laughs> and, and in this moment, when she hears what, what has been going on that day, she's filled with a rage and she threatens Elijah's life. 
And, and Elijah goes from thinking he's about to get a promotion and a place of honor in the kingdom and, and, a, and a spot where he can advise Ahab to being threatened and fired and told basically by the mafia that he has 24 hours to get out of town. And if he doesn't, Jezebel's gonna kill him. And so in this moment in fear, Elijah flees into the wilderness. He flees from the post that God has assigned him in, and he chooses to run into the wilderness. And when he gets there, he's so filled with discouragement and despair at his experiences and his expectations haven't been met that he just lays down on the ground and he asks God to take his life. And he says, the journey's too much for me. I, I can't do this. It's, it's too much. It's a very human moment. Have you ever been there where, where your journey feels like it's too much, like you've had enough that, that you can't continue on and you just wish things would end? Elijah's there in this moment. And so he says this to God and he falls down in the desert under a tree and he falls asleep. But then God sends a messenger. God sends an angel and, and the angel has sustenance, food and water for him. And it says, get up and eat. And so Elijah gets up and he eats, but then he falls back asleep. He's still exhausted. And so a second time the angel comes and gives him bread and food and water. And then he wakes up and the angel says, the journey's too much for you. And he goes on and he, he flees and he continues his journey to Mount Horeb. And what's interesting about Horeb is if you don't, aren't familiar with, with Old Testament geography, which let's face it, like why would you be? Horeb is actually Mount Sinai, which if you're familiar with all of the Old Testament literature at all, you know that Mount Sinai is a place where God has continually revealed himself to his people. Time and time again, God has shown up on Mount Sinai, whether it's to reveal himself to, to Moses as he's trying to lead the people or he's shown up and given them the law. And I think what's happening in this moment is that Elijah, in his desperation and his depression, he's fleeing to a place where he knows God has, has showed up in the past. And, and I think his hope is that as he flees to this mountain, that God would show up and reveal himself and give him some sign of his presence or his power because he feels lost and depressed in this moment. And we do that too, don't we? When our expectations are unmet, when, when we get to places in our life where we can't see what God is doing, we're desperate for him to show up in some way, some sign that shows us that he loves us and that he's with us. I think that's what's going on in, in Elijah right here. But little does he know that, that when he gets to the mountain, God will show up but just not at all in the way that he expects. And so I wanna pick up and, and read that part of the story again, because I think there's a lot of details that are really important for us to see so that we can understand what is going on in this story. And so picking up in verse 10, um, God says, the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Which is an odd question after Elijah's just been on this incredible journey. What are you doing here? Why, why are you here? We'll come back to that in a little bit. And Elijah's response is, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and broken down your altars and put to death the prophets with your sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Which do you hear almost the tone of bitterness in his response to God's question? I mean, it's almost like Elijah's saying, I showed up, I've been zealous for you, I've done my part. Where are you? And then he goes on and, and he kind of exaggerates his circumstances a little bit too. He says that, that he's the only one left that's faithful to God. And yet we know from the story up to this point that there was a man named Obadiah who told Elijah he had saved a hundred prophets from the wrath of Jezebel and that he's not alone. And, and not only that, but he says that all of Israel wants to kill him and has turned away from God. But, but in reality, Israel had just started to turn back to God and the only person that wants to kill him is Jezebel. And so he's kind of exaggerating these circumstances and blaming God for his circumstances. And again, in our moments of hardship and suffering, don't we often tend to do that? Don't we often tend to say, God, where are you? Why aren't you showing up in my life? 
And don't we often tend to exaggerate our circumstances and think that we're the only one who has problems? Again, it's a very human moment from Elijah, but his interaction with God continues. And so after he says this, the Lord says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great wind and a powerful wind tore through the mountains and tore them apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, which literally translated means a soft stillness. And that's where God appears to Elijah, is in the soft stillness. And it goes on and it says, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood up at the mouth of the cave. And then the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Notice God repeats his question. And then Elijah repeats his answer. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have been rejected. Your covenant broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord says to him, go back the way that you've come. I have more work for you to do. You need to anoint Elisha as a successor to you. You need to anoint King Jehu to replace Ahab. And you need to anoint the king of Aram, which is actually the town and the country that Jezebel's from. And, and God's basically saying, these kings are gonna rise up and they're gonna take care of, of my enemies. Oh, and by the way, you're not alone. There's 7,000 people left in Israel who have not betrayed me and who are still faithful. And so God sends him on his way. So what is going on in this story? What is the source of Elijah's frustration and upset and anger at God? And why does God appear to Elijah in a whisper? What's going on here? Well, I think there's, there's two things that we can pull out from this passage. And the first is this, that, that God is always at work for his kingdom purposes. Every step of the way through this story, we see that God is at work. We see that God is at work behind the scenes in ways that we don't expect. And even when people choose to rebel against him or disobey him or remain passive to him, that God still is at work. As I was talking with Nick about the story, one of the things that he said that struck me was that, that, that God is kind of like a master chess player. And, and it's almost like he's playing with these little kids who are moving the pieces however they want but it still doesn't impact the outcome of the game. God understands and knows how the story is gonna end. But he's always at work accomplishing his kingdom purposes. And in that, God works in ways that we don't expect. And I think that's truly at the heart of Elijah's trouble in this story. At the heart of this story is Elijah's frustration with God, his anger and bitterness towards God because life didn't turn out the way that he expected it. He expected at Mount Carmel when God sends fire that it would be this amazing victory for him and that it would call the people of Israel back to himself, that Ahab and Jezebel would turn back to God and that the rebellion would be over, that justice would be restored, that the kingdom would get back on track. And yet none of that happens. And, and Elijah thinks that God's, the best way that he can turn the people's hearts back to himself is by this incredible display of power, by fire coming down and judging his enemies. And yet it does very little to accomplish the purpose that Elijah is hoping for. And, and so he has all these unmet expectations and, and God is, I think, trying to tell him something on the mountain about how he works. I think that's the point of the whisper. Often when we come to this passage, people think that Elijah's in this place of depression and, and despair and that God comes to him and says, hey, buddy, you know what? I know things have been tough for you right now. I know things have been hard. I know things aren't going the way that you want, but I've got this still small voice that will comfort you. And I do think God is trying to comfort Elijah, but not simply by saying, it's okay, you don't have to worry. I think what God is trying to reassure Elijah of is that he is at work in the most unexpected ways. And the reason I think that is, I think you have to, to compare Mount Harib to Mount Carmel. 
Because in Carmel, God shows up in this violent, amazing, immense display of his power. He shows up in the fire and he consumes everything around and there's total victory. And it's this amazing, incredible action by God intervening and saying, this is who I am and this is my power. But on, on Horeb, God's not in the fire and he's not in the violent display of power. Instead, he appears in the soft stillness. And I think what, a, what God is trying to reveal to Elijah about himself is that our God is not a God who always works in big and magnificent ways. But more often, he's at work in the subtleties of our life. In the places when it looks like everything is still and God is not active, that's actually where he does some of his best work. I think God is revealing to Elijah this very beautiful truth that when we think he's not active, that when we think he's abandoned us, that when we think he's left us, God is at work in some of the most unexpected ways. And he's trying to shift Elijah's perspective to see that. Which honestly, I'm not sure if I like when I come to the text. And I'm not sure if you like it either. We want God to show up in the fire, don't we? We want God to show up in power and glory and destroy our enemies and fix all of our problems. And when he doesn't, we're frustrated. And we have questions like, God, where are you? If you're all powerful, why is there so much evil? If you're all powerful and mighty, why are the circumstances of my life not the way I expect? Why don't you show up and do something about it? And we resent him. But, but it's in the unexpected ways that God does some of his best work. And I think the clearest example for that of, to us is the cross. Because in the cross, God worked in the most unexpected ways imaginable. No one expected for God's plan to save and redeem his world to be to send his son to become a peasant baby. No one expected God to become human and enter into the mess and the chaos of our life. No one expected God's plan for our redemption and salvation to be the sacrifice of his son. But it's in the unexpected, in the ways when it looks like God is not at work, that God is doing some of his best work. And Elijah's story is a reminder for us to trust God even when it looks like he's not doing anything, even when it looks like all of our expectations are being unmet, even when it looks like the world is falling apart and all of our hopes and dreams are crumbling, to not give up because God is still at work. And again, as I was talking with Nick about this this week, he, he, we talked about this idea that, that when we're in the middle of hardship, it can be really hard to see God at work, can't it? It's easy in the midst of our suffering and our hardship to, to think that God is not there and to miss the ways that he's at work in our life. But oftentimes when we look back, though we may have missed the hands of God at work in the moment, we can see the fingerprints of the events of our lives and the fingerprints of God all over them, showing us that he was actually there, that he was actually working in the midst of our troubles. And so I think a, a, an application for this point that God is always at work, even though it's not in the ways that we expect is that, that we're to remember the ways that God has been at work in our life. One of the problems in Elijah's story is that he forgot all the ways that God had sustained him and brought him victory and shown up. And when he forgets that God is a God who is working and active, he runs away and he flees. And so if we can remember that God has been at work in our lives, then we can have the courage to do what God has called us to do. And I think there's a couple of ways that, that we can try to remember. The first is um, to write a list. Just, just write a list of the ways that God has been at work in your life. Another that I've seen people do is to, is to build altars. So Elijah rebuilds the altar that the people had torn down. And, and I have a friend um, in my life who he and his wife, every time they come through a season of hardship or something like that, they, they have little stones that they write on 
to show and display the way that God has been at work in their life. And then they put these stones together in this little altar that they keep in their house. And over the course of their marriage, they continue to add stones to it to remember in the bad times the way that God has been at work in their life. I have other friends who every time they come through a a particular season, they get tattoos and they remind themselves, and that may not be for you, that's fine. Maybe the millennials in the audience will like that one a little more, but they get tattoos to mark the ways that God has been at work, to to remember the ways that God has been at work. And oftentimes it, it can actually be hard to still, even when we think about it, to remember the ways that God has been at work in our lives. And I think one thing that can be helpful for that is to share our stories. Because when we share our stories with other believers and other people, they can begin to point out to us the ways that God was at work. They can point out to us the fingerprints of God that we may have missed when we look back on our stories by ourselves. And so today, as you look forward to the new year, I hope that you'll take a little time this afternoon to look back on 2016. Don't miss the ways that God has been at work in your life. Don't miss the ways that his fingerprints have covered your story. Remember. The second thing that I think we can pull away from this story is that God is always at work for his kingdom purposes, but for some reason still allows us to respond with the freedom to choose to interact with his activity however we want. There's this weird thing in the story where God is always at work and he's accomplishing his kingdom purposes even in the midst of people choosing to rebel against his activity like Jezebel. Jezebel sees God at work, sees what he's doing, sees the way that his power is being displayed and God is clearly at work trying to turn the hearts of his people back to himself and she actively chooses to push against it. She actively chooses to rebel against God's activity, which which when you see that, after such an amazing display of God's power, you have to ask yourself, why would she do that? Why would she choose to rebel? And I think the reason she rebels against God's activity is similar to the reason that we often rebel. You know, working with students, I see a lot of times students who, who know what God wants them to do. They know how God wants to live their lives. They know what it is that God has called them to. And yet they choose to do their own thing, to go their own way. And sometimes I'll ask them like, why did you choose to do that? Like, you know that that was wrong. You know that's not what God wants from you. And they'll say, I just wanted to. I just wanted to do it. And and as I've talked with them, I I figured out that that something happens in our life sometimes when we place ourselves as the center of our story, when we think that our story and our narrative is all about us, when we kind of see ourselves as the lead in the movie, we tend to act and, and do things however we want to do them because we think our story is about us. But if we can shift our perspective and see that God is actually the center of our story, then what he wants and what he desires from us is more important than what we desire. When we begin to see ourselves as merely extras in the story, it puts the proper perspective on where we don't rebel against God, but we choose to participate in what he's doing. And the truth is, as much as I hate to admit it, it's not just angsty teenagers who choose to rebel against God, is it? You do and I do as well at different points in our life. And so if you find yourself today in in the shoes of Jezebel, seeing God's activity in your life, but you're choosing to push against it actively and to rebel, my hope for you is that you would repent. And my hope for you is that you would repent before it's too late. Because one of the things that we see in Jezebel's story is that it comes to a pretty gruesome end. For her rebellion against God, she is judged and she is punished. And, and her end comes in a really unceremonious way. She's, she's pushed out a window and, and her dead body is eaten by dogs. It's this incredibly gruesome, terrible moment that results in the choices that she has made to continue to push against God's activity in her life and to rebel against him. And so my hope for you today is if there's any place in your life where you are rebelling against God, that you would choose to repent and participate in his activity. 
the second character that we see, he's almost a minor character, is King Ahab. And he's what I like to call the passive. Because he sees God's work, he sees God's activity, he's there when God brings fire from heaven, and yet he chooses to just kind of take a step back. He chooses to not engage with God at all in the activity that he's doing. And if you think about it, I think it's pretty obvious the reason why. He comes home to his wife and he tells her all the things that God has done. And his wife says, I'm gonna murder that man who did all those things. Now, if you just place yourself in his shoes and and, and what you know about Jezebel, how many of you guys would stand up to Jezebel and say, I think that's a bad idea. You You know, I know that you're angry, but it might not be the best idea to fight against God. Can you imagine for a moment what Jezebel's response would have been? Like, can you imagine the pain and the hardship of that fight and like what that response would have been? And the truth is that sometimes it's easier when we see God's activity it's easier to choose to just step back and remain passive. It's easier for us to choose to disengage than it is to engage. And in some ways, I almost think that Ahab's choice is worse than Jezebel's. Because Ahab thinks that he's not making a choice and by not making a choice, he's safe. And he thinks that by not making a choice that, that no harm's gonna come to him, that, that God can just do his thing and he's gonna do his thing. And I think oftentimes in our lives, especially in the areas that we tend to live, we, we have this heart that, that says, okay, God's doing stuff, but I'm kind of gonna, gonna do what I want and then kind of put a little bit of God into that. And, and we choose to just kind of stay passive to what God is doing and not actively engage with what he's doing. And we think that that, that, that gives us some sort of security or safety. And in reality, not making a choice to engage with God is a choice. And when we choose to remain passive, it leads to a life of insignificance. Do you know how Ahab's story comes to an end? He's killed in battle. Nobody notices, nobody really sees. Jehu's already been anointed and so he comes to power. Ahab's passivity leads to a place where his life has has no significance and no meaning because he wasn't willing to take the risk to engage with the activity that he sees from God. And so he fades off into the background. And and so for you today, if you've been passive to God's activity in your life, I pray that you would choose to engage with him. I pray that you would choose not to remain passive, that you would choose a life of significance, living to join God in his kingdom work and his kingdom purposes because he's gonna accomplish them whether or not you choose to engage, but the, the legacy of your life will be decided on that choice. And the last character in the story is Elijah. And we often like to think of Elijah as the hero of the story. We often like to think of Elijah as the person who represents our ideal, what we're supposed to live up to. But what makes me really uncomfortable about this story about this narrative is that Elijah is not the hero. Elijah is what I call the disobeyer. And you may be kind of surprised that I say that because most of the time when we come to this text, we say, man, Elijah's gone through a hard time. God comforts him and then he sends him on his way to do more work. But if you look at the details of the story, if you look at what Elijah is actually doing and how he's interacting with God, there's several reasons why I think he's actually disobeying God by fleeing away from Jezebel And the first is this, that when Elijah receives the threat, he flees to the mountain, but when he gets to the mountain, God's response to him is not, man, I'm so glad you came here. It's not like, good to see you. Instead, his response is, what are you doing here? Why have you come here? And if you've ever been on a journey where you've traveled and someone gives you that response, you immediately feel like you're not welcome, correct? Like if they say, man, why are you here? Didn't expect you, don't necessarily wanna see you. It doesn't make you feel welcome. And I think that's, but the, the heart behind God's question, it's not a question of welcome, but a question of rebuke. And not only that, but in his wandering, he wanders for 40 days, the text tells us. And I think it calls us back to to Israel's wandering in the wilderness, where when they lacked the courage to enter the promised land, God sends them on a journey where they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Elijah, due to his lack of courage, 
His unwillingness to stick it out in the fight against Jezebel has to wander the wilderness for 40 days. And not only that, but in the wilderness, he chooses to leave the promised land. And we, we've seen over and over again in Old Testament scripture that any time someone of God's people leaves the old promised land for other lands, it's a sign that they've given up on God. It's a sign that they've given up on his activity, that they don't really want anything else to do with him, that they've given up. And we see that in Elijah as he's wandering in the wilderness. And not only that, but, but Elijah also, his interaction in this moment when he leaves and flees breaks a pattern that we see in Elijah's life over and over again. So if you read the story in 1 Kings, Elijah's life looks something like this. God spoke and Elijah acted. God spoke and Elijah acted. God spoke and Elijah acted. Jezebel spoke and Elijah acted. And rather than in that moment seeking God and hearing from God, he hears a word from Jezebel and he flees. And so he doesn't seek God in this moment. And not only that, I think the biggest reason why I would, would be willing to say that Elijah is disobedient is the reason that it gives for Elijah fleeing. He's afraid. And one of the most common commands from God in scripture is do not be afraid. But in this moment, Elijah, forgetting all that God has done, all the ways that he's been at work in his life, chooses to flee. He's afraid and he forgets to trust God. He forgets to seek God and he chooses to try to find his own path and his own solution. And oftentimes in our life, when we encounter hardship, and suffering, we can choose our own path and our own solution, and we choose to run away from God. I think that's what we see in Elijah. In my own life, there was a season of pretty intense hardship when I was in college, where my mom passed away shortly after um, my sophomore year of college. It was actually finals week. And when she passed away, after a, a little bit of grief, I began to run from God. And I began to run from the call that God had placed on my life. In, in this hardship and in, in my despair and my depression from my loss, I chose my own path and my own solutions. And I made a lot of choices that I now regret and wish I could have back. But in those moments, I, I'd forgotten all the ways that I'd seen God at work up until that point in my life. And I chose to turn my back on him. I chose to go my own way. And I chose to disobey and be disobedient to the activity that God was doing in my life. I was disobedient to his call. But you know what brought me back? You know why it is that I'm able to stand here before you today? Is that God reminded me of the ways that he had been at work that God reminded me of all of the things that he had done in my life, things that I had missed, things that I hadn't seen. And it was his grace that brought me back. And so if you're in a place today where you're running away from God, where you're choosing to be disobedient to his activity, it's not too late to come back. It's not too late to return. What's really interesting about this story is that there is no model for us we can either rebel against God's activity, we can, we can choose to be passive to his activity, or we can even disobey his call in our life and his activity in our lives. But, but what the ideal is, is for us to participate in God's activity, isn't it? To, to see the ways that he's at work and choose to join him. But we don't really see that in this story. Elijah never really comes back to participating in God's story. Because see, the way Elijah's story ends is, is God gives him this assignment. He says, go anoint Elisha. And then I want you to go anoint these two kings who are gonna take care of my enemies. Do you know Elijah only completes one of those tasks? He anoints a successor. And then Elisha, Elijah's successor, goes and anoints those kings. And throughout the rest of his life, there's moments where, where a prophet rises up and confronts Ahab or Jezebel or other people who are, are living against God's will. But it's very rarely Elijah. 
And I think what we see is that because Elijah chose to disobey, even though he's a believer, God still has grace on him and, and, and he, he, he's, he's allowed to enter into to heaven and God's presence, but he's not allowed to participate in, in God's work and activity the same way. He's kind of put on the sidelines a little bit. And so it's kind of a disheartening story because when we look at these people, we see that they're all flawed. Even God's servant, the person that we would consider the hero is flawed. But what we also see in this story is an invitation to choose to participate. We do not have to be rebellious against God's activity in our lives. We do not have to remain passive to the things that God is doing. And we do not have to, to be disobedient to the ways that we see God at work in our lives. Even though we're sinful, even though we're imperfect, God still allows us the option to choose to participate. And so the question for you today and for me as we enter into this new year is how will you choose to engage with God's activity in your life in 2017? How will you choose to engage with the way that God is gonna be at work in the world? Will you choose to rebel and push against it? Or will you just remain passive, allowing God's work to pass you by? Or will you be disobedient to the, God, the call that God has placed on your life as a believer? Or will you choose to participate? This morning, as we, as we wrap up, we've got communion down here in the front for you to participate in. And, and the communion table is a, a wonderful reminder of the way that God has been at work in our lives. It's a wonderful reminder of the work that God has done in Christ Jesus to redeem us and reconcile him, us to himself so we can participate in his kingdom activity but it's also an opportunity to participate. It's a declaration of your allegiance, of your choice to say, God, I choose to participate with you in the work that you are doing in this world. And so as they play, we're gonna have a few moments for you guys to, to sit and contemplate. And I would encourage you to contemplate this past year, the ways that you've seen God is at work and where he may be calling you to join him in his work in the future. And then when you're ready, you can come to the front and you can receive the bread and break it and dip it in the juice. And, and we're gonna do it a little differently today where you can just come up to the front as you feel led um, and serve yourselves. And we have gluten-free elements on the side over here. But as you come and take and eat and remember that this is Christ's body broken for you and that it is his blood shed for you, Pray you also remember the other ways that he's been at work in your life and that you would choose to participate in that activity.